The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I am joined by my colleague, as usual, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Mark DiCamillo, a veteran pollster, premier pollster of the state. I'm trying to embarrass him. Um, Mark, thank you very much for being with us today. We wanted to chat, chat about your latest poll at Berkeley IGS. Great. I'm happy to be here. Um, obviously, one of the big messages of the poll is that people who are likely to vote, it's closer now uh, between those who want to dump Newsom and those that support him. Why do you think that is? Well, there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, certainly in our earlier poll in April, we did suggest that there was an interest gap that Republican voters uh, reported being much more likely to be highly interested in voting in the recall election. We documented that again in this poll. But we found some other factors as well. Uh, we asked the question about who voters thought was going to win, uh, what was the outcome of the recall going to be? Would Newsom be able to defeat it or would he be recalled? And nearly all Democrats said, oh no, he's going to defeat it. Uh, it was something like 80% to 7 or 8%. I mean, it was so all one-sided. Whereas Republicans were more likely to say, no, he's going to be recalled by about a two to one margin. So there's a fair amount of complacency, I would think, uh, built into those numbers. Uh, Democrats just think this is not that serious, I think. Uh, and yet the poll uh, shows otherwise. Um, I would also point to the fact that the replacement election uh, doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, arousing much attention or interest among Democrats. Certainly there, there's no major Democrat in the field. And when uh, we asked the preference question, listing all the various candidates, um, on, the re on the replacement election, a quarter of the Democrats say, I'm not even going to be voting in that election, uh, which is an odd thing, uh, given that when you count the votes, it'll likely be more Republicans voting than Democrats. Uh, and it gives Republicans another, uh, another reason to show up at the polls. So, um, you know, it's a very odd situation. It's certainly a surprise to us, because when you looked at the overall registered voters, which we asked, you know, how would you vote if you were voting? So if everyone had voted, we didn't see any erosion uh, in Newsom's recall numbers uh, from our April poll. So the, the, the news story here was that once you define likely voters uh, based on their interest, based on their stated intention to vote, and also based on their voting history, uh, it's much closer. And that is a worrisome thing for the governor. So you've been talking about the Republican and the Democratic case. Uh, where do the independents fall in and out in there? The independents, like they usually are, uh, usually reflect the broader statewide electorate. I mean, I've always thought that no party preference voters really show you which way the wind is blowing in politics on most issues. And so when you look at the preferences of no party preference voters who are likely to vote, it's four points. 50% would uh, support uh, retaining the governor, 46% would vote for the recall. So it's very similar to the statewide numbers, which are 50-47. What's with um, the popularity of Los Angeles area talk show hosts? I remember in the 90s, Bruce Urshanson, who got talked up as being this really strong candidate, 
that many people in the state had never heard of. I think Larry Elder is sort of in that position as a talk show host in LA, but outside of LA, I have to tell you the truth, I like politics and follow it. I'd never heard of him until four or five days ago of that. Uh, so what's, is this basically LA weighted? Is this LA heavy? No, no, LA is actually much smaller share of the likely voter population uh, than what their total registered voter numbers would be. Only about 21% of the likely voters are coming from LA County. It's about equal to the Bay Area, which you often see in low turnout elections. You see the Bay Area voters comprising just as many or sometimes more of the, of the electorate than LA. So no, it's not a LA centric thing. Um, I think also Larry Elder was going through this week when we were doing the polling of suing the Secretary of State, making a lot of new noise and a lot of press about the fact that he was left off the ballot and yet he had turned in something like 300 pages of tax returns and he ultimately uh, won a judgment by, uh, uh, by in court to put his name on the ballot. So I think that ironically, his omission by the Secretary of State ironic, ironically benefited him in getting more people aware of who he was. Um, and, you know, when you look at our numbers, we had this question, which I found very interesting, you know, where we asked about each of the major candidates, at least the ones who were being most talked about in the replacement election, would you be considering or not considering supporting this candidate? And they could mention as many names as they wanted to as being as candidates they would consider. Uh, Larry Elder is considered be, being considered by 78% of the Republican voters in our sample. Um, that compares to 56% for Cox, 52% for Falconer, and then it drops off after those three. So of the Republican voters, uh, they seem to have more recognition and knowledge, or at least say they're considering uh, elder than any of the others, which is a very uh, surprising result for, yeah, for someone like us up here in Northern California. I'm in the Bay Area, you're in Sacramento. So, uh, you know, it's not uh, heavily coming from that, but these are Republicans around the state. Well, and, it, and I think one of the other surprising things there is you said that Cox was actually doing better than Faulkner. And I think many had argued that Faulkner was really the star who had yet to emerge. And so far, he is not emerging, or at least that's my take on these numbers. Yeah, you know, his campaign, I think, mostly is policy oriented. It's heavy on policy. He wants to present himself as the serious candidate in the, in the bunch. Um, you know, I've been polling a long time. Policy isn't always the biggest deal for voters. I mean, the specifics of the policies that you're going to implement. I mean, it's really a lot about do, do voters feel warm and comfortable with you? I mean, really, it's like Mervyn Field used to say, it's like trying on a suit. You have to feel comfortable. You try it on and you say, yeah, that feels pretty good. Uh, I don't think he's made the sale on that dimension yet. For some reason, Larry Elder feels like a very comfortable suit for a lot of Republican voters. It's a uh, the takeaway here for Democrats that they have to get the vote out. They've got to energize their, their base. They've got to get their message out, whereas before they don't seem to have done that very well. Is that fair to say? Oh, most clearly. Again, if everyone voted, the overall electorate, uh, Newsom was 15 points defeating the recall by 15 points in the same poll. So, you know, all you have to do is look at those two sets of numbers. About half of the people were 
considered the most likely to vote and the, the rest of them, it was nearly 6,000 people in our sample. The total uh, were the total registered voters. You had a 15 point gap among the total registered voters, just a three point gap among likely voters. So those other 3,000 people in our sample, certainly if they were voting, were heavily weighted toward Newsom, but they're at the moment in time, they're not voting. The, uh, the way the election's set up, it's a two-step ballot, two-point two ballot. You are asked whether you want to get rid of Newsom or not. And then you're asked, who would you if so, who would you replace him with? So I was looking at the 2003 Schwarzenegger, who was a late entry into the election, wound up getting less than half the vote. He got 48.5%, I think. Right. Um, he got less than a majority and won the governorship because on the um, question two, you don't have to, you just have to have more than whoever is close to you. You just, you, if you have the most votes, you win. So does this hurt Newsom, hurt an incumbent going in to the election or does it make much difference or can you tell? Well, it depends on the enthusiasm uh, on the replacement side. And we still don't know yet how enthusiastic voters are gonna to be towards the various Republicans. And again, looking at the sample, it looks like Republicans will be making the decisions because many of the Democrats are gonna be sitting on their hands. Uh, so I continue to look at the Republicans and uh, in, the, in the coming weeks, uh, look at the uh, campaign contributions, look at, you know, I, I read this morning that Elder was endorsed by the Lincoln Club in Orange County. That's a significant thing. Uh, if he can coalesce support around his candidacy, I mean, he wants to just make it me versus Newsom. He wants that to be the frame uh, for Republican voters anyways, uh, when they go to the polls. And uh, we'll have to see if that's a successful strategy. But uh, uh, it's real. A lot depends on, on just the enthusiasm that Republicans have for a candidate. I mean, right up to the entry of Elder, uh, you'd have to say that most of the can most of the Republicans were just kind of wondering, uh, you know, who's there and who should I support? And they hadn't yet felt all that comfortable. Now we do have a front runner, even though 40 percent of voters are undecided. Uh, Elder is the front runner. It's clear in this poll, both on the consideration measure and on the first uh, choice preference measure where he's leading 18% uh, to 10% for Falconer and Cox. But to be clear, this is still an early point in this race, in, in a sense, I mean, because they had just declared, because he got all that free press about uh, the lawsuit. This could really change. We're at a fungible point and we still have uh, whatever, a month and a half until the actual election. Is there a reason to think that this could significantly change in the next 90 days? I mean, or not 90 days, uh, 45 days? Well, it's a very compressed timetable. Uh, voters are going to be getting their ballots in a few weeks. Uh, so, you know, things will have to happen very quickly to really alter the dynamic that you're starting to see. Uh, I wish we had more polls and more time to do uh, trend measures uh, among the likely voters. I mean, this was the first poll we took in which we tried to define likely voters in a way that we felt comfortable with, because at least voters knew when the election was. It's coming up on September 14th. And, you know, we could talk about that date and when, how likely they would be to vote on that date, how much interest they have in the election and so on. Um, but 
because it's so compressed, we'll only be doing one more poll, and that'll be in the final week before the election. Um, and at that time, we'll probably see that a big chunk of the vote has already been cast. <laughs> which for a pre-election poll is a good thing <laughs> because they are the likeliest of likely voters. If they've already voted, and we usually go back to the Secretary of State and, uh, and to check the verification that they actually submitted the ballot, uh, we don't just take their word for it. We can then look at that vote and see how it's going. And, uh, you know, political data always publishes this interesting information about who the composition of the electorate of people who've already already voted. I'm hoping that they do that again, Paul Mitchell's group. Uh, that's very helpful as well. So we'll have a lot more information when we're doing our final poll about the turnout uh, than we do now. Right now, it is our best guess. But again, these are the likeliest of likely voters in our sample. I have to say that. Well, and one question I have. So uh, in 2020, because of the uh, pandemic, every voter was mailed a ballot, is that correct? Right, and we're gonna get that again for this election. Exactly, and so do you think that could change the picture of who really is a likely voter, or is that something you took into account in doing this? No, we didn't take it into account because it hadn't happened yet. It's all very, uh, you know, if people had received a ballot, we could have certainly said, have you received a ballot? Do you recognize the fact that you have it in your possession? You know, <laughs> have you not thrown it away into the trash can? Um, again, we're measuring interest and intention. And these are directly from the respondent. Uh, and uh, the Democrats were 30, 40 points lower on both of those measures uh, than the Republicans. So, you know, maybe once the ballot is in hand, it'll shake things up, but I can't look around the corner on this poll. I can look uh, at, I can take another snapshot when we do our next poll and, and see what it says at that time. And again, if the shape of the turnout is significantly different, that will be a major storyline from our next poll. Uh, it's going to be as much about who's ahead, but also who's seems like they're likely to vote or who's, who, who are voting in, in this election. Mark, in your polling, do you um, inquire where the people you're serving, where they get the, their information about the candidates? Is it newspapers, TV, social media, that kind of thing? We actually do. We have a question in there and we didn't really report on it, but I can try to look it up while I'm on the call. But we had a question in the survey which asked voters where they get most of their information about politics. And let me just kind of review for, for a minute what they didn't the also Capital Weekly, I take it. That, I'm sorry? They didn't say Capital Weekly was where they got there. No, no, these were very broad categories like television and, okay. you know, uh, social media, okay. that kind of thing. They didn't just volunteer? I, I read Capital Weekly every... No, no, day. no, we, we didn't ask it that way. We had about 10 categories of... Well, next time, next time. Yeah. You're here. Next time, I'll, I'll do that for you guys. Okay. But anyways... Um, I'm trying to see if I can find that tabulation because it's it, it, it's it is in our data, but I, I'm not seeing it at the moment. So I'm I'm sorry. I well, the only reason I ask that is because uh, sort of a cliche in campaigning is that you try to define your opponent before your opponent defines you. Right. And I'm wondering if Larry Elder kind of springs up, you know, at the last sort of the last minute now. Yeah. Uh, whether now all the Democratic strategists now read after this guy with all the oppo research they've got and whatever yeah all right i just found it so let, let me break some 
uh, poll number news for you guys on this podcast. Um, about 40% of the voters said they got their main political news from news websites. So they go online and they go to websites of various news organizations or secondary sources or whatever. And among those voters, uh, the no voters uh, were 10 points greater than the yes voters on the recall. So a little more heavily weighted for Newsom on that particular segment. Um, next, num the largest segment were people who got their information from television, whether it's network TV or local TV. It was just a broad category. Similar numbers, 10 points on the no side for, uh, for the recall. But if you got your news from social media, uh, it was an eight-point advantage on the yes side. Uh, that was only about 10% of the sample, but it does show that different news sources really make a difference. If you're following social media for your main political news, uh, you're more likely to be on the yes side in this recall. Does the, the fact that uh, mail-in voting will begin uh, before 29 days out, I think, from the election from September 14th, so you're going to have to be polling then. You'll be out in the field when people have already mailed in their ballots. How, 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 do, polls, how do you accommodate for that? People already voted. We've done this many times where, you know, a big slug of the vote, maybe a quarter uh, of the sample of people that you're reaching in your final poll say they've already voted. It's a direct question. Uh, how likely are you to vote in the, in the recall election? And the fourth category, or have you already voted? And so, you know, very likely, somewhat likely or whatever. Among those who are who have already voted, we basically ask them the question in the past tense. We, here is the ballot. For whom did you vote? Uh, for those who haven't voted yet, we say, who well, who are you likely to vote if, if you're voting today? So, you know, we have this sample and it's substantial. I, I'm expecting in our final poll, at least I'm hoping that we'll get four or 5,000 likely voters. We're gonna send out emails to even more voters than we did on this poll. Um, and so if a quarter of them have already voted, you know, you might have as many as a thousand people in our sample who've already voted, which should be a pretty stable estimate. Uh, so, uh, you know, we'll have that information. It does make me a little more secure <laughs> when I'm releasing my final pre-election -pre poll, because at least I've got a quarter of the vote pretty much well documented. Uh, and so then the rest of it is the intentions of the remaining voters. So if the early voters, uh, I mean, here's, here's a good uh, litmus test. If the early voters are favoring uh, Newsom, I think that's probably a very good sign because uh, I think the Republicans are so enthusiastic and so interested in this race that they'll probably vote as soon as they can. They'll be the earliest of the early voters. So if Newsom is surviving among the early people who've already voted, I think he's probably going to be on safe ground with the rest of the sample, although I'm just making assumptions here. So that's how I'll be looking at our final poll. Do you run into a problem where people don't want to be surveyed? Oh, God, of course. <laughs> it's the major problem of the polling industry. And, you know, it's, it's the major dilemma. And every pollster is trying to confront that differently. Um, the way in which we're doing it at Berkeley, and I think this is a fairly good way of going about it, uh, 
we have a very large sample because we're actually sending out email invitations from the university uh, to a random sample of the state's registered voters. Uh, we do benefit from the fact that about 10 million Californians have an email address affixed to their registered voter, uh, you know, their official registered voter file. So we can randomly sample voters off of that 10 million sample. Uh, certainly we make some adjustments for the people who are not with email addresses, but we, we have such a large sample of votes coming back or of, of respondents coming back. We then can uh, actually model the electorate and that's the real key to our poll. We Random sampling is great, I've always been a big fan of random sampling. It's better than panels where you recruit people. Uh, but the best thing about our poll, I think, is the amount of weighting and modeling that we overlay onto the responses that we get. We certainly know, for example, that people who are uh, active voters are more likely to participate in a poll because they seem to participate in elections, well, they're also more likely to participate in polls. So you have to, when the overall sample comes back, the people who didn't vote in recent elections needs to be modeled or weighted up because you're underrepresenting them somewhat. The same kind of thing is going on, and we saw this in the last two presidential elections nationwide and in California. The same thing is going on among voters who supported Donald Trump for president. Uh, fewer of them, for whatever reasons, chose to participate in polls. And I think that was one of the, the, the weaknesses of the national polls and, and even within the various competitive states. It was a lot closer because of response rates were lower among the Trump supporters than among the Biden supporters. Same thing happened in the Clinton uh, Trump election. So we can also model that to the actual vote, not only statewide, but within all of these separate little regions of the state, we divide the state into eight or nine different regions. We have the actual vote from the 2020 presidential election. We make sure that our sample of the people who voted in that election line up properly in how they voted. So we're doing a lot of things. And, and then we have the traditional ways of modeling, which is get the right number of Republicans and Democrats, get the right number of men and women, get the regions right in terms of the population totals. There's so much that we're doing in modeling the electorate that it gives me comfort that I think our poll at the end of the line, the weighted sample, is as good an estimate as you can get in today's age of, of hard to reach voters. Uh, it's, it's a tall order, but because we're starting out hopefully with 8,000 or so registered voters, we've got a lot of sample there. We've got a lot of groups that can be weighted. The less educated voters need to be weighted up more than the higher educated voters. There's a lot of things going on all at the same time. And we're trying to do as best we can to represent what we think is the state of California in all of its uh, various characteristics. Mark, when you talk about a likely voter, is that someone who voted in the last election or the last two elections or the last three? How, how do you, what is a likely voter and a, we know what a registered voter is and an eligible voter is. Right. What's, what's well, a it's a judgment call. Um, we have three different variables that went into the definition of likely voters in this poll. Uh, and uh, the questions first, uh, the first one was about interest. Uh, 
how interested are they in voting in this upcoming election? And then there was a direct question about stated intentions. Uh, you know, are you absolutely certain you're going to vote, you know, somewhat certain or whatever? There was a scaled response there. And then we also have the voting file so we know whether or not the voter has voted in past elections. Now, in the in the 2020 election, for example, the presidential election, 80% of California's registered voters voted. I mean, this was the biggest turnout we'd seen in many, many years. So we want evidence, I think, in this poll of the fact that at least they participated in one of the past elections. I mean, if 80% voted in the presidential, they'll get through the screen if they just said that. But I mean, if they happen not to have voted in 2020, we'll look back at 2018 and, and other elections. We want to see some evidence that they voted, that they're living and breathing and actually voted. So uh, that's part of it in this sample. You know, special elections always have, uh, in California, traditionally have had low turnout. Right. And We've had special elections on a myriad of things, earthquake repairs and funding and that kind of stuff, taxes, that. But this is also a special election. But do you get a sense of more people are interested in it or not? Do you get a turnout? I know it's a hard question. Andrew. It's a hard thing. And even even with our, you know, rigorous turnouts uh, questioning, uh, you know, about half of the people got through the screen. Uh, I think it was like 48 or 49 percent ended up in that sample, the pool of voters that we considered likely to vote. Now, you know, some reporters would then say, oh, you're predicting a 48% turnout. No, not really. Um, I don't know what the turnout will be. I, I don't have a crystal ball. But I, I can say that these are the likeliest of likely voters. Uh, and even if it's an over-reportage, let's say it's only going to be a 40% turnout, you know, it's not that uncommon for people to overstate their intentions. They, they'd like to vote, they intend to vote, but they don't always vote. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess I'm expecting turnout to be in the, you know, less than half, but I couldn't tell you exactly where it'll be. Um, it would surprise me if it were a big turnout election. Uh, Mark, one last question. The, uh, do you see any trends? Do you see anything? I know you're, this poll, the polling has been completed, but if you're are you seeing anything now that we can look ahead over the next two or three weeks that you expect to happen or may happen? The numbers telling you anything? No, but, you know, just looking at this result from this snapshot, I mean, I wish I had multiple snapshots then I can see a moving target, but just the numbers that jumped out at me, besides the fact that it was a close election among the likely electorate were the Larry Elder numbers. Let's follow him in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I want to look at other polls that come out to show his support. I want to look at other indicators besides polls, you know, campaign contributions, endorsements, whatever you have at your disposal. Let's see, is this really a consensus candidate or is it just something that happened in this poll because of the week in which we were doing it? He was making a lot of news because he was uh, suing the state and, and actually winning. Uh, and that roused the, the Republican electorate. So let's see if Falconer makes a move. I know there's going to be some uh, debates. Uh, maybe the Republican base will warm up to one of the candidates in the in the debates. I don't think Elder is going to be a part of that debate, the first one anyways. Uh, so it'll give an opportunity for Falconer and Cox and some of the other Republicans to make their case and to get people aroused and interested. There's still a huge chunk of voters who haven't made up their minds. Archie Camillo, thank you so much. 
Uh, we could chat for another hour on politics and polling. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, now we are going to head to a, a sort of a regular feature we do, who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Uh, Tim Foster, it seems like uh, when we were chatting about this earlier, it seems like Gavin Newsom had a bad week in California politics, partly because of Mark's polling, the numbers that uh, evolved from that, from the surveying. So what do you think? I, I think that's the best I've seen. Uh, I think there was a lot of shock in these numbers, especially considering that the last polling that had come out that Mark alluded to, uh, the no on the recall side seemed to have been much higher and it seems to have declined. Uh, also, I think combined with that, not related to the polling, I think the fact that the Delta variant really seems to be uh, becoming a very aggressive part of our lives again. And we're having mask mandates in some some locations. I don't think that's going to be good for the governor. And then, of course, there was, I'm not really even clear on the news here, but there was a photo of, of one of his kids taken without a mask at a daycare or a school or something. I'm not even that clear on it, but he was getting pinged for that. And, of course, it's never good when your kid is being uh, singled out. You know, I think we all, most people agree that, politicians children should be left alone but some people don't follow that so it has not been the greatest week i'm sure gavin newsom has had better weeks put it that way i think the numbers too would uh uh suggest that he repositioned some of his campaign strategy at least to the extent i've seen it that that uh, really it's coming down to get out the vote and getting democrats energized uh it i guess it's no surprise that the people who want the recall are more energized and engaged than those that don't but I think those that don't should get more on the ball here, it seems to me, politically. And I think the numbers basically reflect that. So I think it's fair to say the governor had a bad week. He's an easy punching bag, I know. But this week it seemed to work. So, um, so there you are. Anyway, Tim, thank you very much. Hey, thanks, John. And this is John Howard saying we will see you next time around. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.